in 2013, uh, I felt called by God to plant a church. And uh, at the time, uh, if you remember my story, uh, I was walking through a season of healing, uh, really broken at the end of 2010, things were really tough. And so uh, the end of 2010 through early 2013 was a real time of healing for me. God was uh, teaching me about intimacy with Jesus. And so I was growing deeper in my walk with Jesus in ways that I never had before. And it was so illuminating. He was healing uh, our marriage. Uh, We had a lot of healing to do from this broken time in our lives. And and so over the course of a few days, God was confirming uh, that he was calling me to pastor a church. He did it through several mentors. I had some very close mentor relationships that that he confirmed the calling, uh, but also through this crazy vision. uh, and, and, And so all of this together was like, hey, Greg, I want you to pastor a church. And I was completely convinced that uh, I was to lay down worship. You know, I've been a worship guy my entire career. Lay down worship and pick up a Bible and pastor. And I thought it was in New York City, um, which is a longer story. Um, but, 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 But here was the first step. When I asked God, what is the first step? It was very clear, sell your house. Sell your house. And I've told you guys this before. Um, uh, while it made sense to sell and to move, uh, it made no sense in the natural. And here's why. Um, if you own a home, this was the first home we ever owned. So we had owned this house for 12 years. And so um, I went to my wife and said, I feel like that God is telling me that we need to sell the house. And it was met with a resounding no. <laughs> no, why, why would we do that? No, there's gotta be another way, another plan. And so it was really hard to think what represented safety, security, the only real asset we had in life. Hey, sell it, sell it. I'm asking you to push everything across the table. Not to mention that I had no real training, no real pastoral experience, no formal education to pastor a church. It made no sense, just a strong call, several confirmations of that call. And so I took a deep breath and I said, yes. Have you ever felt the Lord calling you to sacrifice something that you didn't really wanna give up? Has anybody ever had that experience? that you feel this strong, urging, leading, calling to walk away from something that you do not want to walk away from. Uh, For us, you know, our home, it represented so much of what we wanted to hold on to, yet God was calling us to give it to him. And there are many things in my life that I still white knuckle, right? Do you know what white knuckling is? Yeah, just holding on as tightly as I can. Uh, And so I've got plenty of those stories of what I'm still holding on to and I struggle to let go of. And yet every time I'm invited into this adventure of faithful obedience, here's what I know. There's a blessing on the other side of my yes. That God is saying, hey, all I want is your yes, and then there is something I'm going to do on the other side of it. And you're like, okay, cool, what? I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) Because remember, there is faith, and then there is sight. And we walk by faith, 
not by sight. And for many of us, for many of you sitting here today, you are incredible at walking by sight. Walking in what you can see. And you're like, God, put the plan out in front of me. As soon as you give me A through Z, or at least A through F, I'm willing to walk into what's next. And God's like, great, cool story, bro. Um, I'm giving you A, and I'm inviting you into an adventure. And every time I say yes, the reward is great. And so we're going to pick up the narrative of Abraham's life in Genesis chapter 22. So if you have your Bible, turn there. And uh, we're going to find Abraham, he's the carrier of God's covenant, invited into faithful obedience by God. And on the surface, this is a beatdown of a story. It's a horrific story. But we need to dig into it so that we can uncover what are we really supposed to learn? Genesis chapter 22. Let's just jump in. Starting in verse one. It says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am. He replied. So sometime later. So let me catch you up in the story because we've skipped over a couple of key events to get here. Um, Just remember back in Genesis 12, that was the initial call of Abram. Uh, before he became Abraham, his name was Abram. And if you remember in Genesis 12, he just, uh, God says, hey, listen, uh, we don't know anything about him other than the fact that God called him and said, hey, I'm gonna give you land, I'm gonna give you descendants, and I'm gonna give you blessing. And then if you jump over in chapter 13, he, he doubles down on that and says, hey, look at all the dust of the earth. Like any of you been to the beach? Imagine a beach and all the sand of the seashores. And he's like, hey, listen, that is how numerous your offsprings are going to be. That would freak you out, right? And then again, he moves to chapter 15. And again, he says, hey, look up at the sky. Look up at the stars in the sky. That's how numerous your descendants are going to be. And he keeps speaking blessing over him, keeps speaking covenant over him. And, and, and so you remember the story. We talked about it two weeks ago in Genesis 16. You remember Hagar, who's a maidservant of Sarai's. And they were looking at this whole promise of blessing. So promise that, uh, listen, descendants are gonna be in your future through your offspring. And so Sarai has this great idea. She's like, hey, I'm barren. I can't have kids. Hey, I'm gonna give you my maidservant. So why don't you go into the tent with her, have a baby, and that will be the child that the blessing will be passed down through. What could possibly go wrong with that plan? And so we see that they take matters into their own hands. It's a miserable failure. But then you see at the beginning of chapter 17, after Ishmael is born, that God comes to Abram and he says, hey, listen, you've made some mistakes. You took matters into your own hand, but guess what? I'm gonna change your name. I'm going to change your name from Abram to Abraham. You're going to be called the father of many nations. It's going to be an incredible ride. And by the way, I'm changing your wife Sarai's name to Sarah. And this time next year, she's going to have a baby. Your old wife is going to have a baby. Look, Genesis 17, verse 19. 
God says, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So that's kind of a, it's kind of a weird thing, right? He's, he's almost 100 and his wife, who has never had a child, is now promised late in life that she's going to have this child. Again, I said this a couple of weeks ago, but if you are, you know, older, say, you know, 40-something, and, and you think that your life is over, that was facetious. There's a lot of really old people in here. Um, uh, but, but, but just imagine, you think your life's over, and God's like, no, I'm just getting started. And for a lot of us, we feel like we're coasting to the finish line in our relationship with Jesus. And he's like, I'm not coasting. I, I, I'm ready to keep going. I'm ready to keep going. And so uh, Isaac was born to Abraham at age 100 in chapter 21. And now Isaac is a young boy as we enter into this narrative. So the next thing we hear is God tested Abraham. So this was the relationship that God had with Abraham. In chapter 12, he tells him, leave all your security, leave your, leave your family, leave the land where you grew up, leave your comfort, leave your inheritance, and go to a place that I'll show you. No map, no details, just leave and go. And what did Abram do? He left and went. In fact, in Hebrews 11, it says he left not even knowing where he was going. All he had was a promise. And it was God's job to lead him to that next place. He also told him that Ishmael was not the carrier of the covenant, but another son would be given to his barren wife. I mean, what a crisis of belief. And it seems like at every turn, God is upping the ante in Abraham's life. I mean, you've been faithful to this point, but I was just thinking about this uh, as I was kind of walking through this passage. Do you ever get to a point where you're like, hey, God, enough? Like maybe you've been through a beat down of a season in your life and you're like, God, I just need to take my breath, right? I got to catch my breath. God, I'm in the middle of the Grand King and I don't know how I'm going to get out. That happened real time. But, but, but at the end of the day, it's like, God, I just need to breathe. This has been such a hard season. Why do you keep testing me? Why are you pushing me even further? Is it possible that we get tired of obedience long before God gets tired of testing? Because here's the truth. God never tires of taking you into deeper intimacy with him. He never gets tired of that. So if you've been following Jesus for a long time and you've decided that you've kind of arrived, first of all, there are bigger issues with that, right? None of us have arrived this side of eternity. Amen. That until you take your last breath, God's not done with you yet. And in your intimacy with the Lord, he's always wanting to take you to that next step, that deeper place. But know this, you get tired of walking in faithful obedience long before he gets tired of inviting you into intimacy with him. And for most of us, I think about God's will. So if I were to ask you to raise your hands, everybody raise your hands if you wanna know God's will, God's purpose for your life. Anybody? Everybody in the room, right? By the way, that doesn't make you charismatic. You're fine. Um, but uh, 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 you, you think about it, man. We all want to know God's will, God's purpose for our lives. 
So I'm about to reveal it to you. So you've been waiting for this for a long time. Okay, are you ready? God's will for your life is that you know him. Nothing more, nothing less. That's it. For some of you, you're like, wait, that's it? Because for some of you, you're thinking about God's will as this, oh, you know, off in the future, this, this guiding north star that you can give yourselves to so you can run. And God's like, yeah, listen, when, when I uh, unveil my plan for you, my plan for you is in the secret place every day. Deeper intimacy, because out of that deeper intimacy, he will lead you into places and there are things that you will do and experience that will completely rock your world. But that's just gravy. For some of us, we want to be players in the kingdom of God. God, give me something to do. I mean, guys, I'm a doer, right? I want to charge the hill. And so I'm like, God, give me something to do. And he's like, that's awesome. But first, I want to teach you how to be. Because if you don't recognize my voice, if you're not living in daily intimacy with me, you're going to miss what I have for you. There are things that I'm going to tell you to turn left when it seems intuitive to turn right. But if you can't hear me, if you're not living in daily intimacy with me, you're going to miss it. The goal is not the end. The goal is the journey of hearing and faithfully obeying. So he calls out and he says, Abraham. And what does Abraham say? Here I am. I'm right here, the dialogue between God and Abraham. I love it. Abraham is standing at full attention, ready for whatever is next. Why? Because he knows God's voice. God has been faithful to him. He's been walking in faithful obedience, and he's really not afraid of what's next, or so he thinks, because, because he, God has been faithful at every turn. And he's so dialed in to his voice and to his way that when he speaks, he immediately says, I'm right here. I'm right here. So look at verse two. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Okay, take your only son, Isaac. Wait, didn't he have another son? So here's the implication. God is, take the only son that I've actually given you. Remember in chapter 16, he doesn't speak in chapter, but just imagine. Uh, he says, hey, remember back in chapter 16 when you took matters into your own hands and you made yourself a son because you were afraid that I wasn't gonna bless you? You were afraid that I didn't have a plan? Like I was surprised by all of this? No, now I want you to take the son that I provided in chapter 21 and I want you to take your only son, the one I've given you, and sacrifice him on a mountain I will show you. So remember this story started in chapter 12 with go to the land, I will show you. And what does he say? The implication is I'm gonna lead the way. You don't, you don't need to know. You don't need to know. I'll let you know. Remember the original hearers of this? These are the Israelites that are wandering around in the desert. Do you remember how they were being led around? Cloud by day, fire by night. They got this concept. 
They understood the concept that it was God that was leading them. And now they're being reminded, hey, this is what God does. Just go, follow me, I'll lead the way. But this ask is a little different, right? It's not just where to go, it's who to take and what to do. I mean, it seems like a really horrific ask from God, doesn't it? Because I mean, I'm, I'm reading this text and I'm putting myself in the story. So got three daughters. Um, my youngest daughter was leading worship this morning and she asked me uh, today, she goes, hey, are you gonna mention me in the message today? I'm like, I don't think you want me to mention you in this one. Um, but, you know, I think about the, the, the prophet Meatloaf. <laughs> do y'all remember that song? I would do anything for love, but I, I won't do that. That dates me a little bit. But uh, you think about the idea, you're like, God, I'll do anything you tell me to do. I'll go anywhere you tell me to go. I'll give up anything you tell me to give up, except dot, dot, dot. We have stipulations in our followership. Is that fair to say? That, that for a lot of us, we look at this story and we're like, man, why would a loving God uh, test him in this way? And I think it's a fair question. It's a little freaky. But while it seems crazy to us, um, it was actually a very common practice in that culture. Uh, the, the, the Canaanites would sacrifice children to their gods all the time. So while it was an uncomfortable thing, Abraham's looking and going, well, it's not out of the ordinary for God to ask someone to give up a child. Doesn't make it easy. But in their culture, it was a little more, uh, today we're like, oh, you're crazy. This is how cults are formed, right? So think about how Abraham was trying to rationalize this was trying to figure out how this works. Remember, God had just given him a son at age 100. So he had just provided the conduit for the blessing. So God has provided and now God's like, hey, that son that I provided, I'm taking him away now. So take the, take the only asset that I've given you, take him up the mountain and sacrifice him. I mean, it feels cruel and unusual to provide a pathway to the promise and then force Abraham to give it up in the most brutal way. Just doesn't make a lot of sense. And it made so little sense to Abraham that look at what it says, verse three. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey. He took with him two servants and his son Isaac when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him to go. This is Abraham in a nutshell. In chapter 12, he says, hey, leave all your security, leave your inheritance, leave everything you know, go to a land that I'll show you. And he's like, peace out, and he's out. And now here in chapter 22, he's like, hey, take the conduit for the blessing and go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. And it said early the next morning, he got up, and went. No dialogue, no bargaining, no hedging, just unflappable faith. God said it, and now I must walk in obedience. I just gotta say yes. 
How's that sit with you? No bargaining? No, hey God, I'm willing to do it, but can you give me a few details first? No hedging, just, okay, let's do this. See, for, for most of us in the room, I'll include myself, um, you can't identify with this story and here's why. You are not living in intimacy with God. Like it would never occur to you that God would, would tell you to move to the left or the right uh, because you're not deeply dependent on him in the secret place every day. Because know this, these are secret place conversations. Right, so for a lot of us, um, this is the last time, if you brought your Bible, you'll crack it open this week. And this is kind of your lifeline that you come and you're like, hey, fan the flames, make me feel good and, and, and I'm gonna uh, let this ride out for the next seven days. And hopefully I'll manage my sin well and I'll show up less guilty today, uh, next week than I am this morning. What if there's a shift that takes place in your life? What if God is calling you and inviting you into this space of intimacy? Because he's like, listen, I want you to know me. I want you to know me the way I know you. Because I know you better than you know yourself. And I would love for you to know me in that way. And I'd love to have these conversations with you about matters of faith, about matters of your life. There's an adventure I'm inviting you into. So for a lot of us, this is a disconnect because you're like, why would God ever call me to do that? Well, you wouldn't know because you're never sitting with him. Have you ever asked him if there's anything he wants? Have you ever had the courage to go, have you ever gotten in the secret place with him and just said, hey, I wanna hold on to nothing. Whatever you want is yours. Anything, anything you want. I will hold nothing back. Some of you are like, this guy's crazy, right? Welcome to restoration. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, this is the life that we're called into. This life of faith. It says, I will take my hands off of my life. There's nothing that I'll hold on to. Is there anything that you, if you were honest, you would say, if God asked me, I would be unwilling to give that up. couple years back, I was having lunch with Charlie Bates. I asked permission to share this after I shared it at eight o'clock without his permission. But uh, I, I, we were having a conversation and I said, hey, I want you to make a list of, of, of anything that you feel like would be a potential that God could ask you to give up. And then just ask the question, would you be willing to give it up? And he said, like what? I'm like, well, like you're in six fantasy football leagues, right? What if he called you to give up fantasy football? And he goes, why would he do that? And I said, put it on the list. Because if that's your first response, right? If your first response, when God says, hey, I want you to give this up, you're like, whoa, why? Why? You know? And he did report to me that he's down from six to three, right? So good job, bro. Sinner. Um, we're in a league together, by the way, so it's, it's fun. It's fun. Here's the bottom line. The number one thing God wants is your heart. 
The problem is there are things that are competing for your heart, right? Like your reputation, like your house, your pool, your career, your bank account, your retirement, your discretionary time, fill in the blanks. God wants your heart, but he's got a lot that he's competing with, right? And for a lot of us, we're like, hey, I've carved up my heart. Man, you should be thanking me for being here this morning. You showed up for your once a month gathering. And it's like, hey, that's so great. I'm so glad you're here. But the question is not whether you show up at church on Sunday mornings. He's not interested in your spiritual life. He's interested in your life. And there's something he wants to do. And he's trying to pry your fingers off of those things that you're holding on to so tight because you're scared to death of what it's going to cost you to live by faith. Someone at the end of the last service said, it's kind of like when you're looking and the sun is in your eyes and you can't see the detail of what's ahead because the sun is so bright. And so it, it, it makes you slow down. It makes you walk more tentatively. And so what do you have to do? You have to put your hand up to block the sun so you can see what's in front of you. And for some of you, you are so blinded by fear of what it's going to cost you that you're unwilling to go, you know what, God, whatever you want, I'm going to walk into it, even when I can't see what's on the other side of my obedience. The beginning of every great God adventure begins with leave and go. Leave and go. Okay, look at, Verses four and following. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. So they've been journeying for three days. I can't imagine what the inner dialogue that's taking place with Abraham. Can you imagine it starts off with the mountains way off in the distance, but as they get closer and closer and closer, he realizes that he's actually gonna have to follow through with this. Maybe he's having the conversation that Jesus had with God in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't want to do this. Please take this cup from me. But he knows he can't really say it out loud because he doesn't really want Isaac to know what's about to take place. But he tells his servants, hey, we're going to go off ahead. And what does he say? He says two things. We will worship and we will come back to you. Interesting. So first he said, we will worship. So for some of you, you're like, oh, we were, he's going to go up the mountain and sing a couple songs because that's what worship is, right? Sing a couple songs. So we have adapted that in church as uh, that's what that means, sing some songs. So uh, unfortunately, uh, Paul had a broader definition of worship. Romans 12.1 said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to present your bodies as what? Living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and pro proper what? Worship. See, worship is not a song you sing. Worship is a lifestyle you live. Yeah. Worship is the sum total of your life. Which means today you'll leave here and you'll go to lunch. And so worship is not you raising your hands, singing at the top of your lungs. Worship is actually how you treat your wait staff when your eggs are a little cold. 
It's how you berate them and you send it back and then you go, well, you're getting a small tip like it was their fault. It's when you get in line at the grocery store and, and, and the person in front of you has 25 items when it's clearly the 10 item or less lane. And you stand there quietly murmuring under your breath, 10 items or less, 10 items or less. It's when you're going 60 down Fish Creek and, and, and some fool is going 45, the speed limit. That's just an example. I have no knowledge of that. So, uh, but, but again, here's the thing. All of those things, that's our spiritual act of worship. You can raise your hands and sing at the top of your lungs in here. And man, I hope you do. We wanna be an engaged bunch when it comes to singing to God. But at the end of the day, worship in here that it doesn't transform your life out there is worthless. There's more to life. So he says, we will worship. But then even more curious, he says, and we will come back to you. We will come back to you. So this is interesting. I mean, Abram or Abraham believed that there was an answer other than him having to kill his son. He had this unwavering faith. Hey, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. But he believed in his heart that there was something more at play. And at Hebrews 11, the, the writer of Hebrews in verse 17 says, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice, he who had embraced the promises about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So he's like, hey, this child was born out of a dead womb. There's nothing God can't do. If you can uh, uh, implant a child in my old wife, you can do anything. You can do the impossible. You are the God of the impossible. There's nothing impossible for you. What faith is that? It says, I'm not gonna accept what I see on the surface by faith. I'm gonna climb this mountain we will worship and we will come back. Verse six. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son Isaac, and he carried, he, he himself carried the fire and the knife. So two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Can you imagine the brutality of this conversation? That he's made it this far without Isaac really asking any questions and now they're climbing the mountain and his son says to him, hey, we got all the stuff for the sacrifice Where's the actual sacrifice? Where is the lamb? And I gotta believe that Abram gets a little gulp, a little lump in his throat. God's gonna provide it. 
He'll provide it. We don't know the inner dialogue that's going on as he's headed up that mountain. We only know of his unwavering faith to take the next step of obedience. And so as if this story is not weird enough, this is about to get freaky. Um, when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. What? Can you imagine this scene? They get up to the top of the mountain and Abraham starts fashioning this altar and he gets the wood all arranged. And then can you imagine that he says, come here, son. He bounds his feet. He bounds his hands. Can you imagine Isaac is, is like, what, 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 what are you doing? Dad, dad, what are you doing? Dad, what are you doing? Can you imagine the shrieks and yells of this little boy? as he sees his, his dad lame on the altar and he turns and grabs his knife and now he thinks his last image is gonna be his dad standing over him with a knife raised ready to slay him. I mean, what is up with this story? I mean, this will give you nightmares, right? Here Abraham says, God, I will hold nothing back from you. I mean, this is a serious case of chicken, right? God, I'm not blinking. You've told me to do it. I'm going until you tell me to stop. So I, so I'm reading this text and I mean, honestly, I'm like, I'm out. I'm not doing that. I mean, my daughters, first of all, I don't think I could wrestle them down. Um, they're adults now. Um, but I think about my grandkids. I, could, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. But as I'm immersed in the text, my thought was this. How far am I willing to go to see the faithfulness of God in my life? So let's take it out of slaying your son. For some of us, that's so far out that you're like, oh, I can't even relate to that. But know this, there were a lot of steps along the way before Abraham got to this point. There were a lot of steps of obedience that he took day after day after day. And the reason that for some of us, it's like, well, I can't even fathom that is because we're not even willing to take the first baby step. And so the reason it seems crazy is because we've not really allowed that faith to be activated in our lives. And so what would it be like to say, God, I will hold nothing back. How far are you willing to go to see God do what only God can do? And again, the reason the American church is largely impotent is because of what Josh talked about last week. We got people that got one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. And you're like, hey, God, man, I love you. I will follow you to the ends of the earth, but don't mess with my stuff. 
Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to live my life. I'll manage my sin. At least on the surface, I'm going to look like I got it together because I'm a Christian. When in reality, God's like, uh, yeah, great. I want it all. How far are you willing to go to see God do what only God can do? What's on the other side of your yes? Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. He replied, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. So, man, clue into this moment. Remember, his son is probably shrieking, begging for his life. There's chaos in that moment. And in this chaos where he's lifted the knife, this angel of the Lord calls out and says, Abraham, Abraham, what if he hadn't listened? What if he wasn't dialed into his voice? What if in all of the chaos, he just couldn't block it out, that he had already kind of decided, okay, I gotta go through with this. I just gotta, I just gotta turn and burn, right? As we can all get in our lives, right? I'm just gonna block it out. I'm gonna clear the mechanism and I'm just moving forward. And in that moment, God says, whoa, stop. Don't lay a hand on him. It was intimacy that gave him the faith to go and do and intimacy that gave him the ability to stop when he needed to. What's the key component? Intimacy with God. It is in the secret place. That is our training ground. When we're willing to show up, to sit and be silent, to be immersed in his word, the character and nature of God are in the pages of this book. And then the specifics of what he may invite you into is between you and the Lord. It'll never contradict his words. But here's the thing. If you're not willing to get and learn to discern the leadings of the Holy Spirit, the leadings through his word, you may not hear when he tells you to stop. You may take your matters into your own hands. But he says, listen, you have not withheld your son, your only son. What a beautiful allusion to Jesus right here in the Old Testament. Again, if you wanna find Jesus, he's on every page. You have not withheld your only son from me. While Abraham was willing God went all the way. Through the person of Jesus, he went all the way. God saw that blood sacrifice was needed as payment for sin, and he did not withhold his only son as payment. And then look, verse 13, Abraham looked up, and there in a the thicket he saw a ram caught by his horns. He went over and took the ram, sacrificed it, as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. God provided the ram for sacrifice. That's Jesus right there. 
A life for a life. In the place of Isaac, it was the blood of the ram that covered sacrifice. Jesus, Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin. Somebody's got to die for your sin, y'all. In fact, Romans 6.23 says that the wages or the payment for sin is death. Romans 3.23 says we're all infected with it. Someone's got to die for your sins. And here's the beautiful thing. Jesus took it on your behalf. He is the ram caught in the thicket. He is the perfect sacrifice. And he called that place, the Lord will provide. What we call that place today is that the Lord has provided. He has provided. He has provided for you the death that you deserved. That's good news, right? Okay, so let me close here. I just wanna draw just a couple of little dots for you to connect. He says on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And so, are you ready? The place where Abraham sacrificed Isaac is also the foundation of the threshing floor that David bought from this guy. Uh, it's First Chronicles 21. Look, in First Chronicles 21, verse 24, it says, but King David replied to Arauna, no, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. So it's the same place on Mount Uriah, or Mount Moriah rather, that, that this threshing floor existed. And it was on this threshing floor. David came and said, I will purchase it. He was king at the time. The guy said, you can have it. He's like, no, I will not sacrifice that which costs me nothing. And he pays him full price for it. And in 2 Chronicles 3.1, it says that this is the place where the temple was built. Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, where? On Mount Moriah. So this place, this, this place where uh, God provided became the place where David bought the threshing floor, which became the temple that Solomon built. And so here's what's cool. In that temple that Solomon built, there was kind of this inner sanctum called the Holy of Holies. There was this big curtain, this big veil that separated it from the rest of the temple. Inside of the Holy of Holies sat the Ark of the Covenant. And this was the place, it was the presence of God. It was kind of like this big coffin and there were three things in it. There was a jar of manna, which represented provision. There was a rod of Aaron that, that represented his guidance. And then there were the 10 commandments and they were in this, uh, this coffin type uh, instrument, the Ark of the Covenant, and it represented the presence of God. And it sat there and the priest would go in to the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice on behalf of the people. It was a bloody place. There was blood splattered everywhere. So it was a gruesome place to go and only the priest could go in and make sacrifice for the people. 
but it was a place that represented the presence of God. The Lord will provide. On the day that Jesus was crucified, it says in Matthew 27, it says, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You know what that says to you and me? Equal access to the Father. That, that the same God that, that rescued Isaac from death, that, that made sacrifice in his place on his behalf, was the same place that the temple mount was founded, was the same place where the Ark of the Covenant sat, and it's the same place that the day that Jesus was crucified, that temple veil was torn from top to bottom, meaning you and me are now have equal access to the Father through Jesus Christ. What does that mean to us? It means that now we have become a part of the kingdom. We are priests. We are a holy nation, Peter says. To everyone who says yes, we get to be grafted into the family of God. And it all started with the man who ascended a hill said, I'll withhold nothing from you. And this place became the place where God would dwell for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It's good for you and me, right? And here we are today. We have received the blessing. Everyone who says yes gets the blessing of following Jesus. 2013, Yvonne and I um, left security and safety pretty raw, but knowing that God was calling us into something. I'm so glad that we said yes. I stand here today just super grateful. But here's the most awesome part. He's not done yet. He's just getting started in your life. He is not done. He's just getting started. And so whatever yes you said, guess what? He's like, woo, great. What's your next yes? He's got things that he wants to say, things that he wants to do, places he wants you to go, people he wants you to see. Uh, there's a life that he has for you that is birthed out of deep intimacy with him. And the result is an adventure that you could never manufacture on your own. And so if you look at your life today, you go, well, my life's pretty good. I don't really need that. I would say you would never know. You are putting a ceiling on your life that God wants to blow off because there's so much more that he has for you. So here are three questions I wanna ask you and maybe you'll just close your eyes and consider these this morning. Number one, where is God calling you into faithful obedience? Where is God calling you into faithful obedience? Where is your next yes? Number two, 
Is there anything in your life that's off limits to God? Is there anything in your life, if you're being honest, that's off limits to Him? Finally, how far are you willing to go to see the faithfulness of God in your life? How far are you willing to go? 